Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Good morning. Um, good morning. We're going to jump straight into the scriptures. Um, I don't have a fancy introduction or uh, you know cool stories or anything. Uh, we have we just have so much to look at this morning. We we don't have time. Uh, please don't tell my preaching professor. I'll be I'll be dead. I'll fail the class. Um, so with that, would you pray with me? Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, our Heavenly Father, whose word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, open and illumine our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word, and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing unto your majesty. We pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. So with that, would you grab your Bibles? Turn with me to 1 Peter. We're continuing our series this morning in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 2, uh, verse 4. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10 this morning. 1 Peter, chapter 2, starting in verse 4. So, we're just going to jump straight into the scriptures. The first thing we see is, starting in verse 4, As you come to him. And we're just going to pause there. As you come to him, now as a quick side note, kind of looking forward, I want you to know that all the yous in this passage, now in English we don't really have a, a plural way of saying you except y'all, right? Um, or, you know, the old English is ye. That's why if you read King James, one thing that's helpful about the King James is it distinguishes between the plural and the singular yous, okay? So it, all these ones in this passage are plural. So really Peter's saying as y'all come to him, okay? Um... There's a great uh, app called Texas Bible, which changes all the plural use to y'alls. Uh, it's actually really helpful, okay? Because, again, we like to, we, we tend to interpret things kind of individually, but Peter's talking corporately here. So think y'all. Um, uh, but as you come to him, as you come to him, now it may not seem like a, but even just this small statement, as you come to him, is a bit radical. Um, and, and there's two reasons why right off the bat, this statement kind of should strike us as unique and powerful. And the first reason this statement is unique and powerful is because of this word, him, as you come to him. Now, what is so radical about the word him? Well, it's, it's who Peter is referring to. Well, obviously, if you continue in the verse, he's, he's referring to Christ, he's referring to Jesus, but, and that's crystal clear, but if we put it in the context of the larger passage and what came before um, it, it's a little bit different. It's referring to more. It's, it's, it's deeper than this. And why does he say him here and not use the name Jesus? Well, because he's also referring to what he wrote previously. And it's the passage we looked at last week. Look at verse 3 before this in your Bibles. Um, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So him in verse 4 naturally is referring back to the Lord in verse 3. And in verse 3... Peter's referring back to the Lord, uh, which he had just quoted from an Old Testament passage from Isaiah, 
in which he had said, look at verse 25 of chapter 1, just right above, the word of the Lord remains forever. So the Lord that Peter is referring to in verse 3 is the Lord of the Old Testament. Yahweh, God, God of the Israelites. Um, and so if we follow Peter's flow of thought here, he's talking about this God of the Old Testament. Okay, end of chapter 1. The word of the Lord remains forever. And he quotes Isaiah. And he's giving some instructions. Instructions. I don't know what that is. Instructions to the believers um, that kind of end in, in verse two, chapter 2, verse 3. And this is what we looked at last week. He says, if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, the Lord, Yahweh, that same God of the Old Testament, you've tasted that he's good. That God that gave the law at Sinai, the God who created the world, the God who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. That's who Peter's talking about. God, it makes sense talking about the God of the Old Testament. Well, now look at verse 4 again. He says, okay, so as you come to him, to who? Well, to the Lord, to, to the God of the Old Testament I was talking about. And then he continues in verse 4, and he says, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Well, wait a minute. Now he's talking about Jesus. Well, yeah, but he was clearly talking about the God of the Old Testament before. And so, here's the radicalness of Peter's statement. He just equated Jesus with Yahweh of the Old Testament. He has no problem asserting that Jesus is Yahweh. That's radical. Now, think about it. Um, he, just, he just assumes and asserts that, that we understand that Jesus identifies with Yahweh in some sort of relationship. That's that is so much so that he can take Old Testament passages, and you see this throughout the New Testament, that were clearly speaking of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, and he just applies them to Jesus. When it says the Lord, oh, it's talking about Jesus. Um, that's radical, would be incredibly offensive to the Jews. But I wanted to show you that because... There's plenty of people running around today, maybe you've ran into them, who say, look, the Bible doesn't actually teach that Jesus was God. Maybe they believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus was a God or some sort of divine created being. Maybe they don't believe it all. Maybe they, they believe that Jesus was some type, of, some type of prophet, but not God. But that's clearly not what Peter believes, and that's clearly not what the Bible teaches. It's clear in this passage. You can point him just to this passage right here. Jesus Christ is Yahweh of the Old Testament. But there are other people running around, and you may have run into these. The Bible doesn't teach the Trinity, they say. Well, you can point again to this passage right here and a ton of others. Because the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly portrayed in this passage. Peter makes an assertion and a careful distinction. Jesus is identified as Yahweh, but at the same time he makes a, a distinction saying that he's chosen and precious by God. So in some sense, Jesus is God, and in some sense, he's chosen and precious by God. Well, this is the historic, orthodox understanding of the Trinity. Jesus is one being. The Trinity is three persons in one being. There's a distinction and yet a unity. And this is clear in this passage. Jesus is fully and truly God, but yet Jesus and God the Father are not the exact same persons. Three persons, one being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, clear in the Scriptures. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. So that's the first reason this... this as you come to him, is so radical. But secondly, what's so radical about this statement, as you come to him, is simply this. We can come to God. Have you ever thought about how amazing that fact is? That we, sinful humans, can draw near to God in prayer, into his presence, in the scriptures, and he hears us. As a church, 
as individuals, we can come to Him. He delights in us. He listens to us. I mean, this is, this is crazy. We, we take it for granted, but brothers and sisters, let's not gloss over how radical it is that we can come to God. And the verb that Peter uses here, which is translated as, as you come, it's the same verb that's used multiple times in the Old Testament for coming to God in worship, to hear Him speak, to enter into the tabernacle, to enter into God's presence with sacrifices, coming to God to worship. This is what Peter's communicating. But now, because of God's grace, we no longer have to draw near to Him with fear, with priests, through sacrifices. We don't have to bring dead animals. We don't have to draw near to God in a specific place, in a temple or at the altar. No, we can come directly into God's presence through Christ. We serve a God who not only draws near to us, who not only draws us near to Him, but beckons us to come in grace and in boldness and in confidence. And that's an amazing truth. So I don't want to miss it. And Peter assumes this. So as you come, as you're coming, and this is, this is a continual, the sense is continual. It's not as you came to Christ. So he's not talking about conversion. And it's not, um, it, it's as you come, as you are coming, as you are continually coming to God, as you're drawing near, as you're coming to God in prayer, as you're coming to God in the scriptures, as you're coming to God together. Again, this is a corporate sense. Now, Peter's going to tell us later what happens as we come, what God's doing in our midst as we come together. But first, Peter's going to describe who we're coming to, the one we come to worship, because that's what this passage is all about. It's not about just worshiping in general, or it's not about having faith in general. Worship does no good uh, if its object is not the living God. It does no good just to worship anything, Worship is only good in the sense that it's worshiping the living God. In the same way, faith is not a virtue in and of itself. It has no good to have faith in something that's not real or something that is not the living God. It has no good to, does no good to place your faith in something that's not trustworthy. And so we play, play, place our faith uh, in the living God, the saving God. And that's what Peter's going to show us here. So who is the one we're coming to according to 1 Peter 2.4? Well, it's Jesus, our Lord, our Messiah, our God. And that's kind of the definition of a Sunday school answer, right? It's Jesus. But Peter doesn't just give us his name yet. He, he gives us a description of Christ. He gives us a description. So let's look at that. Continue on in verse 4. Look with me. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So let's break that down. First, a living stone. So he says, Jesus is a living stone. Okay, so that's a bit of a weird description. Um, as far as I know, it's the only place in the Bible that calls Jesus a living stone. Um, and so what's Peter getting at? What, what's he trying to say here? Well, Peter is connecting Christ with the rest of his letter. And you may not have noticed so far, but one of the hallmarks, and this makes sense considering who Peter was and what he saw in his lifetime, one of the hallmarks of Peter's writing is his emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. So in 1 Peter 3, Peter had said that God has caused us to be born again to a living, there's that word again, a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. So he connects this idea with, with living with the resurrection of Christ Jesus. In 1 Peter 11, verse Peter, chapter 1, verse 11, Peter describes Christ's resurrection as his subsequent glory. And in 1 Peter Peter, chapter 1, verse 21, he describes the resurrection again, and he says, He who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, 
so that your faith and hope are in God. So our hope, Peter says, is in a living. Our hope is living because our Savior is living. We don't draw near or worship or put our faith in someone who's dead. Our hope is in a living Savior who's seated alive, seated on high in glory with God. Not only that, but Peter describes the Word of God as living and abiding. And there's all these connections throughout 1 Peter, but I think you see his point here. Jesus is alive. God has raised him from the dead, and that sets him apart from every other person in history, every other religious system in history, every other object of worship or philosophy in history. God has raised him from the dead. Our Savior lives, and because of that, we live. So we come, as we come, we're coming to a living God, a living Messiah, a living stone. And so Peter continues that we come to this living stone. Now what's the deal with this stone language? Well, here, Peter is foreshadowing the language that he's going to present to us in a few, few verses ahead. Um, he's going to present some Old Testament quotations where Christ is identified as the stone. You might have noticed it in Psalm 118. Um, and Peter's going to use that in this chapter. And he's going to say Jesus is indeed the cornerstone, the foundation of the church, of our faith. And so it's a little bit hard to see right now, but what Peter is doing is creating this, this metaphor. He's, he's teaching this, this idea of the church. And again, when I say church, I mean the people of the church, not the building. Um, the people of the church as a temple and as a priesthood. He's building this image. And Peter's point here in this verse is that with this picture of this temple, this priesthood, is that Jesus is the cornerstone of that temple. And what that means is he's the foundation. He's the one. When, now, when you built back in the old days, you had a cornerstone. That was the first stone that was placed. It had to be absolutely perfect. Because if it was not perfect, the rest of the building would be offline. And so what he's saying is, much in the same way, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. Remove Christ, we have nothing. Jesus is the foundation. So he's a living stone. And I think as we continue further on, you'll see kind of more of the depth of what he's talking about there. It sounds strange, but, but it's gonna, it'll become clear. And so let's look at this, this striking contrast that Peter presents us with. He says, this living stone, Christ, has been rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious, chosen and honored. It, a starker contrast could never be made, right? He's rejected by men. Mankind says, we don't want you. You're worthless. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, honored. And when Peter says that men rejected Christ, there's, there's different types of rejection in the world, right? There's kind of trivial rejection. That's not the kind of rejection he's talking about. This rejection implies the idea of considering something, of, of examining it, and then after examining it, saying, no, that's garbage, and tossing it. That's the rejection. It's a re rejection after critical examination. A quick rejection is kind of the idea. When I think of a quick rejection, I think of the rejection, you know, you're walking through the airport or something, and someone tries to hand you, like, a religious tract or something, right? It's like, no, thank you. Okay? That's a quick rejection. You're not even really considering it. You, no, you know, that's a quick rejection. That's not the kind of rejection he's talking about here. He's not saying that people saw Jesus and went, no. He's talking about the kind of rejection that happens when you, you take a jewel to a jeweler. And you say, I want to know if this is worth something. 
And the jeweler takes it and he puts on his little eye thing and he looks at it. He, he puts it in the light and he examines it. He turns it over and over and at the end he says, no, nah, what you have here is worthless. You don't want this. It's garbage. That's the kind of rejection that people reject Christ with. Now, that's what Peter has in mind. It's a rejection that says, you're a fake. You are worthless, Jesus. We don't want you. When the Pharisees rejected Christ, this was the rejection they had. They knew who he was, and they said, we don't want you. You're not what we want. That is the rejection that Jesus faced. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, God in human flesh, come to earth to save sinners, and yet men said, we don't want that. That's not what we want. They saw his miracles. They saw everything he did. They understood who he was claiming to be. And they said, it's worthless. We don't want it. To the garbage. In fact, we want you dead. He was disgraced and despised by men while here on earth. And yet this is the one that we come to worship? Why? Because in the sight of God, the only sight that really matters is chosen and precious and honored. Now, rejection by people is one of the lowliest things you can feel. If you've ever just been rejected by someone, especially someone who knows you, it's one of the most painful things. Terrible. But compared to the value of being chosen and precious by God, it is nothing. And that's the message here for us. See, as we come to Jesus, as we draw near to Christ, we too sometimes will be rejected by people for this. But brothers and sisters... Maybe you haven't experienced that rejection yet. Maybe you have never been rejected for the gospel. Um, it's coming. It's coming. Especially as our society changes, it's coming. In fact, I, I know some of you sitting here today have been rejected by friends or family uh, because of your beliefs. Um, and I'm not talking about if you're a jerk. That's not what I'm talking about. If you're like, Jesus loves you! That's, that's, if people reject you for that, that's, you know, that's not because of the gospel. That's because of you. I'm talking about people who just, you share and love and just say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And I, to be honest, I'm sick and tired of you telling me about him. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the disciples preaching the gospel and the Pharisees say, we want you dead because of what you're saying. But if you've been rejected because of the gospel or when you are, remember this and be strengthened in this. Christ was also rejected. And yet he now holds the most glorious and honor, uh, honored position that has ever been given to anyone. And as Christians, as those who are in Christ, as those who are co-heirs with Him, this too is our future. One day we will be glorified with Him and honored by God. We, like Jesus, are destined for honor and glory after a time of suffering. So take heart, take heart. Hold fast to that living hope. And so as God's people... We continue to come to Christ. We come to Christ, our living stone. We come to our humble Savior, rejected by men, but given glory on high by God. But Peter goes on. He says, so, so far, Peter has explained the action. Okay, Christians, as Christians, we draw near. He's explained the person. Uh, we're drawing near to Christ. And now Peter is going to explain the purpose. Why, why is why is God bringing his people together? What, what's Peter getting at? What is God doing to us as we gather, as we draw near to him? And again, remember, this is a corporate passage. All the plurals used are y'alls, okay? Peter is going to show us that as we come to Christ, God is building us 
like a new temple so that we can be his new priesthood and proclaim his good news throughout the world. Peter will show us that our salvation is not just so that we can sit around and wait to go to heaven, but instead, and listen to me on this, what we're going to see is that God has saved you so that you can be a part of his priesthood and spread the news of how amazing he is. So let's take a look. Let's see. And, and we're going to bounce around a little bit inside the passage here because Peter kind of puts things um, in a couple different places. So let's look at verse 5 first as we continue. Verse 5, he says, You yourselves, all y'all, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot going on in that passage, a lot of strange pictures and weird words. But do you see the picture he's trying to paint? The church, again, the people, not the building, are being built into a spiritual house for God for the purpose of being a priesthood to offer some type of spiritual sacrifice, which is made acceptable through Christ. So let's unpack that a bit. And before you get tripped up on kind of all this Old Testament imagery, remember what God's temple signified for the people of Israel. It was where God dwelt among them. The temple is called God's house over and over and over in the Old Testament. And Peter is telling us, hey, that temple over there in Jerusalem, its days are over. We are now the temple and the priesthood. God doesn't dwell there. He dwells with us. And it's at first you kind of hear that, it's like, wait, what? Yeah, that's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, so Christ, the living stone, in fact, he is the cornerstone of this new spiritual temple. God has set him in place, and he's perfect. Now, when people come to faith in Christ, like living stones, Peter says, God is building his church, his temple, on the foundation of Christ. He's stacking us up to make a wonderful new building where he dwells and his glory can be seen. That's an amazing thing. God no longer dwells in a, in a specific place. His blessing is no longer connected. His presence is no longer connected to some building, but to his people, in and amongst his people. That's the point Peter is getting at. The old is gone, the new has come. And again, maybe this sounds like a strange thing, but it's a glorious truth. And this isn't the only place we see this in the scriptures, this idea of God's, being, God's people being his new temple, his new dwelling place. It's throughout the scriptures. So let me, let me show you a couple places where this shows up. The first one is in Hebrews 3.6. I think there's a slide for it. Yeah. In Hebrews it says this, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We are his house. Again, house, Old Testament language, is his temple. The next one is, is 1 Corinthians 3. 16 through 17, Paul says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Again, in this passage, these yous are plural. So he's talking to the congregation of the church. You are God's temple. And the last one, and this one is, is the most radical, the most clear. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 22. Listen to what Paul says. He says, and the, the, the language that he uses is so similar to Peter here. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's Peter language right there. You are fellow citizens with the saints 
and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul clears it up for us. He says, yes, the church, the people of God, we are now the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is building a people for himself. God is choosing and creating a people for himself that he may dwell among them. And we see, if you skip all the way ahead of Revelation, what is the end of all things in the new heaven and new earth? You will be my people and I will be your God and I will dwell among you. That's temple language. If you look at the dimensions of the royal city in Revelation, it's the same dimensions as the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. And the point is, is that the end of all things, where we're all going towards and what we hope and can't wait for, is that one day we will dwell in the very presence of God that once was, was built and veiled and could not be into, entered into. This is why the veil is torn when Jesus dies. The Holy of Holies has opened now for us to come in through the blood of Christ. That's what we see. We are the house of God. This building, this church building, I heard one pastor say, he said the church building, so that's a, that's a rain shelter. He said we are the building of God. We are the temple of God. Not this building, but us. God has built us and is building us into a holy dwelling for himself. God, the creator of the universe, the almighty, the one who has put the stars in their place, the one who created all things, has chosen a people for himself to dwell among them, to dwell with them. And he has paved the entrance into his temple with the blood of his very own son. It's staggering. God is doing something in history, and it's massive. He is gathering his people. He's building his temple. Let us rejoice in that, and let us rejoice that it pleases our God to dwell among us. In our very midst, he is here with us now. We are his temple. Now, every temple needs priests, right? Well, who's the priesthood? We are. That's what Peter's saying. God is equipping us as his people, as a priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. This spiritual holy priesthood, now, Peter is saying, it's not just for some Christians. It's not just for the pastors. It doesn't mean that there's actual people running around who should be priests. It's not just for the evangelists, for the scholars, or for the super-Christians. Every single believer is a part of this holy priesthood. Are you a true believer in Christ? You're a part of the priesthood. That's Peter's point. And check this out. Peter calls the priesthood holy in verse 5. And then in verse 9 later, he's going to call the priesthood royal. God is making us into a holy and royal priesthood. That means a priesthood set apart for the king himself. The king of all creation said, I'm going to make for myself a special group of people. I'm going to set them apart as my people. Peter says later, a people from his own possession. Set apart a royal priesthood that I may take joy in their work and that I may take joy in using them to do my work. What a privilege. That's amazing. And again, Christian, this, isn't, this is talking about you. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're articulate or a mumbler, if you're a janitor or a CEO, if you're white or black, if you're male or female, if you're old or young, if you are in Christ, you are a member of the priesthood set apart for himself, set apart for and by the king himself. God has specifically chosen 
you as a member of this priesthood to serve in his presence. God has chosen us. He's building us into a holy temple and he's dwelling in our very midst. Let's marvel at that this morning. And as I was studying this, I was kind of just laughing at how if we get, if we get a hold of this idea, if we truly grasp this idea, how are the worries and problems of life kind of just begin to fade away a little bit? Not completely, they're real. But if we realize that, look at this amazing work that God is doing in history, we're a part of that. The little things just don't seem to matter as much. They don't, don't bother us as much. That was Paul's secret in Philippians 4 when he said, I've learned the secret, being content in all things. The secret is I'm a part of this amazing, huge plan. So that if I die, that's gain, right? But if I live, I live with Christ. I'm good either way. That's the amazing thing. Stand in awe of our great God and merciful Savior. And now I want to make a connection here. Notice what Peter is saying. There is a reason God has made us a holy priesthood. And it's not just to sit around. So priests don't just sit in the temple. They do priestly stuff. Peter says the reason that God has called you to himself is to be a part of this kingly priesthood to do what priests do, offer sacrifices. And so God is building us like living stones into a spiritual temple. He's equipping and ordaining us as his priesthood. Got it. But what about the spiritual sacrifices? What's this priestly stuff we're supposed to do? I mean, if we're the priesthood, right, the whole purpose is to offer these sacrifices. We've got to know what they are. Well, let's dissect this. We're to awful offer, uh, Peter says, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, we see that whatever these sacrifices are, they aren't the same thing as the Old Testament. They're not animals and incense and all the Old Testament stuff. All that stuff has been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, so don't worry, priests. You won't get your clothes stained with blood, and you don't have to kill any cute animals, okay? Everyone just relax. These are spiritual sacrifices. These are sacrifices empowered by the Holy Spirit. And notice the Trinitarian language going on here. Spiritual, Holy Spirit-empowered sacrifices through the Son, Jesus Christ, to God the Father. Beautiful. And so if these spiritual sacrifices aren't physical, then what are they? Well, look over at verse 9. Skip a few verses down to verse 9. Here's what Peter says. He re-emphasizes and kind of clarifies what he's saying. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's speaking to the church. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter clarifies for us here. One of the aspects of our spiritual sacrifices, the reason, in fact, that God has made us into a priesthood, is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, our job as priests is to shout out from the rooftops how amazing God is by telling the world what he has done for us. Our job as priests is to proclaim, to declare, to share, to sing, to scream about how good, how powerful, and how merciful and wonderful God is. God has made us for this reason. This is why he's making us into a holy priesthood. God has brought us into his kingdom for this reason. He's created us as his people to display his amazing glory to the whole world. So Christian, your spiritual sacrifice to God is to proclaim the goodness of God. Tell of how marvelous it is, what he's done for you. He's called you out of darkness in a marvelous light. Proclaim that to the world. It's simple. If you're a Christian, think about what God has done in your life and tell other people. That's basically what Peter is saying. That's why God has created us as a priesthood. 
Now let's put some more biblical terminology on what God has done for you. If you're a Christian, if you're a true believer in Christ, if you're in Christ, here are some of the things that God has done for you. 1 Peter 2.9, he says, You were in darkness, God has called you, grabbed you out of darkness, and brought you into the light. Marvelous light. Acts 26.18 says that God has opened our eyes. Your eyes were shut. Now they're open. Romans 3 says that God bought us out of slavery. You were a slave to sin. God bought you with the blood of his own son. God says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, one of my favorite passages, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the God who created light in the very beginning has performed the same act in our hearts, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, it's because God has shown his glory into your heart. Ephesians 2, you were dead in sin under the power of Satan. But God, because he loved you with great love, poured out his grace on you and saved you from spiritual death. Once you were not a people, Peter says in verse 10, chapter 2, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And all of this, of course, is founded in this, that, the God, that God loved his people and sent his son to die in their stead. To bear their sin on the cross. Now this is just a sampling of what God has done for us. The point Peter is making is this. You can't keep this to yourself. You've got to tell everyone how amazing God is. Because it's so radical what he's done in your life. Don't keep it bottled up. Don't hoard God's goodness. Share it with everyone. God has done all these amazing things for you. So that you might proclaim them. He hasn't just done it just so you can be happy and sit here. Now please be happy and please sit here. But that's not the only reason. In everything you do, Christian, proclaim his excellencies. This isn't an option. And it's not just to say, well, you need to go out on the street and start like yelling at people. That's not what I'm saying. In every area of life, we're to glorify God. And in every area of life, we can proclaim his excellencies. To your spouse, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Tell your spouse continually the words with your words and actions constantly of the greatness and goodness of God. Your priesthood. At your job, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Tell your co-workers with your words and your actions constantly of the greatness and goodness of God, your priesthood. On your sports team, same thing, proclaim his excellencies. Tell your teammates with your words and actions constantly the greatness and goodness of God. To your family, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Tell your kids, tell your brothers, your sisters, with your words and actions constantly of the greatness and goodness of God, your priesthood. Christian, you're a member of God's precious, holy, kingly priesthood. Do your priestly duty. Offer spiritual sacrifice to him through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Proclaim his goodness. That's what Peter has in mind here. Now, the New Testament gives us lots of other ideas of what spiritual sacrifices are. It's not just like sharing your faith. Philippians 4.18, Paul says our financial giving to God's work is a spiritual sacrifice. I received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In Hebrews, the author says that our worship and our sharing uh, of our possessions with each other are both spiritual sacrifices to God. Hebrews 13, he says through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
do not go, neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And finally, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, Romans 12 verse 1, says that our whole lives should be offered as a sacrifice to God. He says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Brothers and sisters, this is what we're called to. This is what God has made us for. Let us fulfill our calling as a royal and holy priesthood by declaring his goodness to everyone, by giving, the, giving to the work of the gospel, by worshiping him, by loving each other well, and by offering our whole lives as sacrifices to God who has poured out his mercy onto us and saved us. This is a great and marvelous calling. Let us fulfill it, relying on the Holy Spirit and resting in the satisfaction of Christ. And so we've seen Christians, that Christians come to Christ, the living stone, that in the process God is building us into a temple, a holy priesthood, and that Peter says all this is great, is for the great amazing honor of those who believe, it's for those who believe in Jesus as the great cornerstone, the Messiah, it's for those who will humble themselves, repent, and turn to him in faith. But what about those who don't believe? What about those who refuse Christ, who reject Christ? Why do they reject Christ? Well, our last point this morning is this. Jesus is either your cornerstone or your stumbling stone. In other words, Peter tells us there are really only two groups of people in the world. Those who accept Christ as cornerstone and come to salvation, and those who stumble over Christ to their own condemnation. Look at verses 6 through 8. Peter says, For it stands in Scripture, it's quoting Isaiah in the Psalms, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, Peter says, but for those who do not believe, and again, another quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Peter uses quotations from Isaiah and Psalms here to show us this truth. Those who do not come to faith, who reject Christ, are offended by him. They stumble over him to their own destruction, Christ is disgusting to them. He's considered as worthless to them. The gospel is foolishness to them. They can't stand it. And why? Peter says, because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. The word being the gospel. They disobey the gospel. They reject the gospel. They say, I don't need the gospel. Greek word translated here as offense is, is scandalon. And it's, it's obviously where we get the word scandal from. The gospel, Christ, is a scandal to them. This is the song we sing. We say it in a good way. Scandal of grace, praise God. It's a scandal to them in a negative way. And this rejection of Christ could come in many forms. Some people just reject Christ outright. That's foolishness. I would never believe in that. Science proves that God doesn't exist. Or whatever, whatever excuse they have. Some people reject Christ, though, because they want to live how they want to live. They want to be able to sin without feeling guilty. They know that if they, they come to Christ, they will lose control of their life. Listen to this quote by Pastor Tim Keller. Listen to what he says. He says, People know instinctively that if Christianity is true, they will lose control, and they will not be able to live any way they wish. So they are rooting for it not to be true, and are more than willing to accept any objections to Christianity they hear. How true is that? I pray that that would never be said of you or me. But some people just take the Christ of the Bible, instead of rejecting him outright, and they just change and morph Jesus into a Jesus that, that's more palatable to them, that they can accept. 
They turn them into a Jesus that thinks like them. In other words, they remove the offense by picking and choosing what they believe about Jesus based on their own thinking, their own wisdom. My friends, all of these are equally rejection of Christ. All of these lead equally to condemnation. And in the end, Peter says, God is sovereign over all of this. Peter says that those who live their entire lives and never repent were destined to do this. Man is responsible, but God is sovereign. And these are issues that, that Christians have wrestled with for centuries, but the Bible affirms these two things. God is sovereign over all, and yet men reject him and are responsible for their damnation. And we don't preach these, we don't talk about this stuff because they're nice to hear, but we preach them because they're in God's word. And so God's word actually tells preachers and teachers of his word that if we, if we hold back the hard truths, that blood is on our hands. And so I am, I'm obligated, I'm burdened to tell you about the danger you're in if you're rejecting Christ. Otherwise, I have your blood on my hands. So there may be people here in this room right now who reject Christ. Maybe, maybe you, you've rejected him outright. Maybe you think it's foolishness. Maybe you're rejecting Christ because you want to hold on to your life of sin. Maybe you've made a Jesus that you can accept. But either way, I pray and urge you, would you repent from your unbelief? Would you repent from your ignorance? Would you turn and repent and turn from your pride? Would you humble yourself at the feet of Jesus? The promise stands in Scripture, my friends, that all who cry out to Jesus for mercy will find him to be a perfectly merciful Lord and Savior. Friends, unless you do this, unless you receive the mercy of Jesus, you will receive his justice. You will receive condemnation. For everyone here today, salvation is offered to you. All you must do is turn from your sin and trust in Jesus with your heart. It's a free gift and it's offered to you today. I pray that you would take hold of it. So Peter makes it clear as we finish. Eternal honor is for those who believe, who trust in God. Eternal dishonor, eternal shame and condemnation awaits those who reject the living stone, the resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so for those of you who already believe, we are the temple of God and the priesthood of God. Eternal honor awaits us. Let us fulfill our purpose while we're here, our mission, the whole reason God created us. Let us meditate on the great mercy and grace of God and let us be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and let us together as one body in every area of life proclaim the great goodness of our God to every person and to all creation. Let us lift a sacrifice of praise together to him this morning and forever. Amen. And so if this is something new to you, if, if, if God is pressing on your heart, I pray, would you come talk to me or Rob or Randy or anyone? Uh, we would love to talk with you. If you have any questions, if you have any prayers, uh, Rob and Randy will be up here at the front for prayer if you need it. And so as the worship teams come up, let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Lord, you are amazing. Lord, you give us the great privilege of not only being chosen by you, of not only saving us, of bringing us from death to life, but Lord, you give us the great privilege you've chosen to use us to proclaim your goodness. You don't need us, Lord, but yet you've chosen to use us. Father, I pray this morning that all here would see the great privilege that this is, or would you teach us, would you humble us, would you enable us, fill us with power to do this? Or would you continue to make us holy? Would you continue to build your temple? Would you continue to stack us up as living stones? 
And Father, I pray for any of those here who do not know you, who are rejecting Christ. I pray, Father, would you give them a new heart? Would you open their eyes to the gloriousness of your Son? Would you save them? Would you cause them to be born again to a new and living hope? Father, would you pour out your mercy on them this morning? Lord, you are great, you are merciful, and you are good. We praise you this morning. And now to you, Lord, who are able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. Our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith@orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.